Daniel chapter 7. Are you guys ready? Uh, it's the book takes a turn uh, halfway through it, and we have a lot to look at today. But before we get to reading uh, Daniel 7, I have a question. I want you to think of one of your favorite fantasy, science fiction, action, thriller type movies. All right? Just bring that to mind. Maybe it's one you've seen multiple times. Uh, maybe it's one that, that you can quote some lines from. Uh, maybe it's one that has just entered and formed your imagination, right? Uh, fantasy, science fiction, action, thriller, just kind of go, go there. Do you have something in mind? All right, here's what I'd like for you to do. Turn to someone near you and tell them, what is the movie? What do you love about it? And how does that movie make you feel, right? So what movie are you thinking of? What do you love about it? And how does it make you feel? Take a moment to share, and we'll come back together. Well, so, so I mean, we could keep going and, and have more and more of these talked about. But, but as we turn to Daniel chapter 7, in the second half of the book, of Daniel, we are entering an entirely different genre of writing, right? Uh, we, we've talked about this before, but the first half of Daniel is filled with stories about Daniel and his friends. And the second half of the book is filled with visions from Daniel. And these visions are big, and they are colorful. They share a lot in common with the fantasy, science fiction, action kinds of movies that we're talking about here, right? Um, they, they're just these big stories where there's this clash of good and evil, and you're kind of caught in the middle of it, and there's these scenes that you're just kind of terrified at, but then suddenly things change, right? On and on it goes. Uh, they're, they're just like this, and the stories that we find here in the next half of the book of Daniel came to live in the Jewish people's imaginations much the same way a lot of these classic movies we've been talking about have come to live in our own imaginations. They're things that, that people would, would have thought of and, and gotten excited about and, you know, maybe had a nightmare or two about. I mean, Darth Vader, right? That guy's scary. But, but then, you know, also held on to the hope and, and the overcoming of, of good and so on. Daniel chapter 7 in particular may be one of the most important and one of the most influential chapters in all of the Old Testament that came to live in the hearts and minds and imaginations of God's people. The, the language that we find here, the imagery that we find here, echoes throughout all the rest of Scripture. Uh, we find references to it regularly on the lips of Jesus in the letters of other New Testament writers. So, let's read this wild and colorful story in Daniel chapter 7. And like we have in other weeks, is there anyone who'd like to join me in reading? One or two volunteers? Linda? 
And Bill, I see you. All right. Can you guys come up and we'll take turns reading from Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thorns were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn that was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of them standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will arise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High 
will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn had looked more imposing than the others and it had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and a time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppose his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you guys for helping to read. Let us pray as we continue together. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these colorful images that sink into our imaginations, that perhaps even disturb our dreams just like Daniel. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've got churning waters, four wild beasts crushing and devouring things. Uh, It is a wild scene. I want to ask you the same question I asked you about the movies that you were talking about. How does this story and these images make you feel? What feelings arise as you hear something like this? Passages like this in Scripture are meant to work deeply in us. They're meant to work in us on a deep, emotional, and even visceral level. Just like action sequences, and these big moments in the movies we've talked about, 
work in us. I mean, you're just tensed up what's going on, what is happening, right? It's meant to get a reaction out of us. Very often, folks approach passages like this in the sort of sterile, fluorescent environment of a surgical procedure, right? With our interpretive scalpels ready to dissect each part and determine its meaning. But this kind of biblical literature is meant to be approached with a much more dramatic kind of lighting in a much more theatrical kind of environment. This is not uh, a science project. This is not uh, a dissection project. Um, This is a story of bright and colorful and powerful images that is meant to sweep us up into it. What does it mean is not a bad or unimportant question. It's just not the first question that we should ask when we read a passage like this. How do you feel gets much closer to the mark of what this passage is meant to do in us? How does it make you feel? We see this because that's how Daniel first reacts, right? Right? In verse 15, after his first encounter with this vision, it says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Right? This is the first thing that Daniel does when he sees this. He takes stock of his own heart, of his own internal response. And it's only after that, in verse 16, that he begins to ask, so what does this mean? You see, passages like this in the Bible are what are referred to as apocalyptic literature. You might have heard this kind of phrase before, apocalyptic literature. When we think of something as apocalyptic, we typically think of things that are chaotic, think of destruction, things like that, and this is often a feature in apocalyptic literature. We see it here, right? But the term apocalyptic comes from a Greek word that literally means revealing, or unveiling. It's where we get the title of the book of Revelation because it's the greatest example of apocalyptic literature uh, in in almost all of the Bible. Uh, And so it's this revealing, this unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is a type of writing that is meant to pull back the veil of reality. It's meant to show us what is going on backstage, what's going on behind the scenes, sort of like in Wizard of Oz when Toto pulls back the curtain and reveals that man behind the curtain, right? And suddenly you get a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. Apocalyptic literature reveals what is going on in the world around us, but it's also meant to pull back the veil of our own hearts. What's really going on inside of us? I mean, look at Daniel. He has stood up before and stood up to ruthless kings. 
He has ruled over vast portions of the kingdom of Babylon. He has thick skin, right? We've seen it in all the stories about him. But this vision pulls back the veil and it gets under his skin. So that in the final verse of this chapter, he can't help but say, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. When we approach this text like a sterile science project or a cryptic cipher that we need to decode, we might find something interesting, but we will most likely miss the point of what it's trying to show us. Because when we approach it that way, we end up becoming unaffected observers who often end up arguing about interpretations rather than deeply affected participants who are invited to join into this everlasting kingdom of God, which is the whole point of these colorful, vivid stories. They are meant to disturb us. They're meant to disrupt us. And they are meant to give us hope as well. So after taking stock of our own responses to these kinds of stories, then we can begin to consider, what does it mean? What's going on here And what we see in the apocalyptic vision of Daniel 7 is not only one unveiling, but two. The first is a revelation of great terror. And the second is a revelation of even greater hope. Great terror and greater hope. Let's look at each of these. The chapter opens in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. You guys remember Belshazzar from a couple weeks ago, right? He's the arrogant king who mocked God by using items from the temple as dishes for his party. It did not end well for him, right? Uh, Billy's big bash, the spooky hand that showed up, right? This was a scary moment. He's this arrogant king. And Daniel's vision concerns, or it occurs in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. So on the surface, you have the reign of an arrogant king. But then the veil is pulled back. And what we see is this cosmic behind-the-scenes image of the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And then four great beasts, each different from the others, coming up out of the sea. And so once more, we have this Hebrew image of chaos water. Uh, We've talked about this a few times this year when we've seen it pop up in the Psalms and so on. They often looked at the waters as this chaotic, brooding place uh, of of mystery and, and fear. And we see this here as well, this chaos water. And it immediately evokes for us parts of the creation story, but distorted 
right? Back in Genesis 1, it begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty with dark, swirling chaos waters. But then the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God comes to blow over those waters to calm them. And God begins to create. And God brings order where there was disorder. And creation ultimately culminates in humankind, created in God's image to rule and reign on earth as representatives of God, meant to continue the order and care of creation. That's how the creation story concludes. Humankind caring for the world in the image of God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, humanity's reign as God's image bearers is disrupted whenever a beastly creature arrives to wage war against God by way of corrupting the ones that were meant to be God's representatives. And so this beastly serpent creature comes to war against God's kingdom. And that war has continued ever since that day. And it's what Daniel sees in this vision. This vision depicts a kind of anti-creation story. Instead of the Spirit coming to blow across and calm down the waters, we see four winds come to churn up the waters. And instead of humans in God's image caring for creation, we see beasts emerging to terrorize creation. This is what's going on behind the veil of the arrogant rulers, the oppressive empires, of behind the veil of prideful kings. Right In chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar become like a wild beast. Here in chapter 7, we see behind the veil of Belshazzar another wild and terrible beast. And they keep coming. They keep coming one after another after another. Now, some may want to try to decode these images and map them onto specific historical events and moments and specific kings and so on. You know, this one is Babylon, that one's Persia, this one is Greece, so on and so forth. And there may be some truth to these interpretations, right? Uh, but the point seems to be that every earthly king, every earthly kingdom is the same. Every earthly king and kingdom is ultimately consumed with its own power, building up itself while brutalizing everyone else. This happens again and again, and we have often lived under the same trance that we see here. Right, This fourth beast that's different from all the others and more terrifying than all the others with a little horn that comes up and speaks boastfully. We often are taken in by this very beast's words. 
We hear it as, as the next round of uh, political campaigns start kicking into gear. We'll hear those boastful words. We hear it in all of the ads and commercials that try to convince us to buy something else, to just order one more thing to finally fulfill ourselves. We hear it in the temptations that we feel each and every day. Behind the veil of all of this, there truly are dark powers, beastly figures luring us in, asking for our allegiance, the same way that very first beastly figure boastfully spoke to Adam and Eve and asked for their allegiance. This is the first veil of the passage. It is dark, it's chaotic, and it's terrifying, if we're honest. It is a revelation of great terror. But then, a second veil is pulled back. All of a sudden, in verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Remember the question that looms over the whole book of Daniel. We've talked about it time and time again. After Israel's king is captured, their temple is looted, their people are forced into exile, they ask, is God still king? Does the Lord still reign? I mean, all that can be seen are monstrous beasts stomping around and devouring the world. Is that all that there is? And so in verse 9, another veil is pulled back and we receive a very simple but confident answer. Yes, God still reigns. The Ancient of Days is seated on the throne. This could be, I mean, it could be a way of just saying an old one, uh, but it could be a way of saying an eternal one. One who has all of the days in his hand. He is seated on his throne. He is shining in glorious brightness, surrounded by fire. Thousands attend him. Tens of thousands stand before him. The court is seated and the books are opened. This is a picture of a heavenly court where God presides as judge. I want to ask you a question. Is this picture of judgment and fire good news? Or does it feel like bad news? You see, most of the time, we have heard language of God's judgment and images of blazing fire as bad news, right? It's, it's bad, bad news, meant to strike fear into our hearts. But I want you to hear this. In Scripture, language of God's judgment and images of God's fire 
are good news for God's people. Good news for God's people. It's why we see things like Psalm 96, where it says, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Why would you rejoice at that? Because it's good news that God is coming to judge the earth. The judgment of God is good news because it is the moment when, in verse 11, this terrorizing beast is slain. Its body is destroyed and it is thrown into the blazing fire. This is the image behind all of Scripture's judgment language. When it talks about God's judgment, Scripture is not telling us that God is out to get you, but that God is out to rescue you from the beast that wants to destroy. That's what God's judgment is. It is God setting things right, finally, once and for all. This transforms our understanding of Scripture. And it transforms our understanding of God. Suddenly, Psalm 96 makes sense. Let all creation rejoice, for God is coming to judge the earth. The question through the book of Daniel is, does God still reign? And the good news is, yes, God still sits on his throne and he will put evil in its place. So the judgment and the destruction of this beast is the first part of this second unveiling that we see. But there's more. Because God's work is not yet finished. Because God not only seeks to destroy evil, but also to restore good. God wants to restore a Genesis 1 world where time and time again he said, it is good, it is good, it is very good, where humans were created in God's image to rule as his representatives on earth. And so after the beasts come, like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, there arrives one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So on the one hand, this figure appears like a human being. But on the other hand, He arrives the way that God arrives places. One commentary that I read this week said, the act of coming with clouds suggests the appearance of God himself. If Daniel 7.13 does not refer to a divine being, then it is the only exception out of about 70 passages in the Old Testament. Dozens and dozens of times throughout Scripture, God is depicted as coming on the clouds. And this 
Daniel chapter 7 is a unique instance in the Old Testament where one, like a human being, arrives in the same way that God does. And so who is this Son of Man who comes in the form of God but is found in appearance as a man? Does this language sound familiar to you? Who is this Son of Man who, in verse 14, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power? All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this Son of Man? It is the very question that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written to answer. We often refer to Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ, Jesus Christ. We call ourselves Christians after that. But the primary way that Jesus refers to himself throughout the Gospels is the Son of Man. After forgiving a man, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. After being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On and on it goes. I mean, we could just keep reading. This is just a few instances from the Gospel of Matthew. Throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he displays and declares himself to be this Son of Man. This image in Daniel 7 is one of the most important images as we read all of the New Testament. All of this, comes to a head toward the end of the Gospels when Jesus is in his midnight mock trial before the Jewish authorities. They throw accusations at him and seek to have him put to death. And it would be very easy to look at a scene like this as one of failure, as one of losing, I mean, as Jesus' death inches closer and closer, it would be very natural to feel dread, to feel terror, to feel fear. In a moment like this, it would be very easy to see only the teeth and the claws and the horns of the gruesome beast coming to destroy. And yet... In that very moment, in the middle of his trial, as accusations are thrown at him, Jesus looks beyond the veil of great terror to see the veil of the greater hope. And Jesus says to the crowd, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
In other words, Daniel's vision is about to come true. Jesus is that Son of Man. And His death and resurrection is the means by which the beast will be killed and He will be enthroned. So I want to ask you one more time, how does the story make you feel? It's terrifying. It's disturbing. It is troubling to learn that there really are monsters under our beds. But beyond that great terror is an even greater hope. The Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. He has authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language will worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen.